0: listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 78, Hearing, and I'm your host, James Fodor. So in this episode, we're going to look at the human hearing system and explain how we perceive sounds and interpret them. Uh, We'll look at the structure of the ear, moving from the outer through the middle and the inner ear, talk a bit about the neural pathways and some of the uh, studies of audio processing, so how we understand uh, and interpret audio signals with a focus on how we perceive the sound localizations, so the direction and location of sound, Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the different types of deafness and the cochlear implants as well. Recommended pre-listing for this is episode 53 on sound and music, which will give you a few of the background concepts that will help, although it's not strictly necessary, but it might be beneficial. Alright, so let's uh, get started and talk about the structure of the ear, beginning with the outer ear, which refers to essentially the external visible parts of the ear. So the folds of skin and cartilage surrounding uh, the the outer ear canal are called the, pinny, the pinna. Um, and if you sort of look at the outer ear, you'll, you'll notice that the, there is a sort of intricate structure of, of folds and grooves and so on. Um, which if you think about it is kind of weird. Why would these shapes be necessary? And um, why don't we just have sort of a, a flat surface there like other animals do actually? Um, humans are interesting because we generally can't move our ears around, uh, nearly as much as other, uh, as other mammals can. And, um, actually mammals in turn are interesting because they have external ear structures, which uh, reptiles don't so it's not something we think about very often but the external ear structure the pinner and so on does serve a function and it, the, its purpose is essentially to gather sound and sort of direct it into the ear canal so that we can hear better um, and the uh, the structure of, of folds patterning on the surface of the pinner is th- uh, thought to contribute to reflecting uh, attenuating the sound waves so that f- f- first of all they're received and sort of um concentrated better into the ear canal Um, but also uh, it helps us to provide additional information about the direction that that sounds come from by the way they interfere with each other and uh, so on. So anyway the sound waves um, reflect off the pinner and are sort of concentrated down into the auditory canal Uh, so they enter through the auditory canal and vibrate the tympanic membrane which is also known as the eardrum so the eardrum marks the sort of divide between the outer and the middle ear the eardrum is basically a, a membrane so it's a it's a sort of a flat fleshy organ i suppose it's not exactly an organ whatever you want to call it it is it, it can vibrate to different frequencies depending upon the frequency of of the sound that's causing it to vibrate obviously humans can hear frequency between um a range of about 20 to 20000 hertz so 20 to 20 hertz to up to 20 kilohertz Although there's some variability there, um, and that's going to depend in part upon the range of frequencies at which the uh, at which the eardrum is able to vibrate. Now, of course, when we're talking about frequencies here uh, from the the eardrum and later on, it, it's very rarely going to be the case that um, the vibration vibration only occurs at a single pure frequency. That wouldn't be very useful for extracting information. Wouldn't be very interesting music either. Rather uh, what occurs in practice is a complicated uh, pattern of many different frequencies with uh, each a sort of, um, the the full sound wave that we hear is comprised of the superposition of all of these individual frequencies, each uh, again at a different amplitude. So some more of a, some sounds have more high frequencies, some more low frequencies and um The pattern, the 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 rich sort of textured pattern of the frequencies constitutes uh, this the unique sound that we hear as speech or music or whatever else it is, and it's the the job of our um, brain essentially to to process that and make sense of it. Uh, So that's what's actually happening. But subsequently, we'll I'll often talk about sort of the frequency as if there's only one, uh, but but of course, bear in mind that that's rarely going to be the case. So on the uh, inside of the tympanic membrane or the eardrum We have uh, the the middle ear Uh, The middle ear is basically a hollow space That contains three small bones called ossicles I believe these are actually the smallest bones in the human body Um, The the bones are called the the malleus, the incus and, and the stapes which are also referred to by the English translation of these, essentially, which is the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. And they get their names basically from their shape because uh, they kind of look like a, a hammer hitting an anvil, which is then attached to a stirrup, sort of. But anyway, um, I'll put up a diagram of this so you can see what they look like. Basically, the, uh, the malleus is attached to the tympanic membrane, the eardrum. Uh, the, the ingus, uh, connects the, the malleus to the stapes, and the stapes is connected in turn to the oval window of the, uh, of, of the cochlea, which we'll get to. That's the, the inner ear. So basically, the stapes is connected to the inner ear. So uh, together, the, the three bones, the, the three ossicles bridge the, Connect the outer ear to the inner ear, and their purpose is to transmit the sounds from the the vibrations from the tympanic membrane through to the cochlea. And in doing so, they also uh, further concentrate uh, the sound energy. So the, the the size of the the bone sort of decreases as you as you move from the the tympanic membrane through to the cochlea, thereby concentrating the energy into a smaller place and and uh, providing uh, essentially more of a signal that that can be detected by by the cochlea by the inner ear. So the, the middle ear is crucial because the way we hear in the inner ear, which, which we'll get to, the way we actually transduce sound into electrical signals is uh, through uh, movements of the a fluid or a couple of fluids that, that exists in the cochlea of our inner ear. So we need to be able to trans translate um, density changes in air to movements of an incompressible fluid um, in the inner ear. And the... the Three ossicles serve that role, so that they, they transduce energy from movements in the tympanic membrane through to um, mo- motion in the um, the fluid of the inner ear that that 's their purpose there are a number of uh, muscles that are actually connected to the ossicles um, which can contract in response to loud sounds thereby uh, basically reducing the the freedom of motion of the ossicles as, as sort of stiffening them uh, and this reduces the degree to which sound is transmitted through to the inner ear not completely removing it, but reducing um, the the degree of transmission. Um, basically, that's going to reduce the loudness of the sound because the the uh, size of the vibrations is going to correlate with loud perceived loudness of the sound. Um, this tightening or this contraction of the muscles leading to tightening or sort of stiffening of the the ossicles is called the acoustic reflex, and it occurs in response to loud sounds. So that if sounds get very loud, uh, the ossicles sort of stiffen up, and we won't hear. Very loud, la- or the the perceived loudness will will be reduced, and that's a way of protecting our hearing, especially the uh, the hair cells, because if th- there's too much vibration of the the hair cells, which again we'll, we'll get to in the inner ear, but basically if there's if they vibrate too much, um, they'll they'll be damaged, and so there therefore the acoustic reflex is a way of reducing uh, the transmission of of uh, sound energy, thereby reducing the vibration of the hair cells and protecting them from very loud sounds. The ossicles can also become stiffened with Age, and that's, that's one cause of, or can be one cause of hearing loss in the, in the elderly. It's sort of the, the ossicles become sort of stuck to each other in a sense. It becomes harder for them to move around. And so they're not as good at transducing sounds and therefore, um, hearing is, hearing is lessened. The middle ear is hollow, apart from the ossicles, obviously. The, the ossicles exist in a hollow space, essentially. Um, which means, so it's not filled with fluid like the inner ear is. So that means if, if we move into a higher altitude or conversely dive into water, the, the pressure differences between the, the middle ear and the outside will, will become quite noticeable. And this is why, you know, you, you feel that uh, pressure change in your ears when you're going up in a plane or, or if you dive. Um, and that can, that can actually become dangerous if the pressure difference becomes large, uh, because there's a risk of, uh, of bursting or, or damaging the um, damaging the eardrum, the the tympanic membrane, if if the pressure difference isn't relieved. Um, so so you you want to keep the pressure difference between the middle ear and the the outer ear uh, sort of not too large, uh, otherwise it poses a danger. The eardrum or tympanic membrane can become ruptured. Uh, one cause of that, as I've just mentioned, is is if there's very large pressure differences. Um, it can also become ruptured due to infection or um, trauma. There's various uh, causes of it becoming ruptured. Or very loud sound can also uh, cause rupture. Thankfully, though, the it seems to be quite good at healing itself because in the large majority of cases, uh, the eardrum will heal completely within a few weeks. There can be cases where it won't heal, especially if there's ongoing infection, but for the most part... Um, Perforated eardrums will heal, heal by themselves, although it will take a little bit of time. Okay, so that's a bit about the, the middle ear. Now let's move on to talk about the inner ear, which is the most complicated part of the ear. So this is the most, obviously, in, inward uh, part of the ear. And it consists mostly of the cochlea, which, which will mostly uh, be the focus of what we talk about today. The inner ear also includes three um, semicircular canals at uh, right angles to each other, which constitute the vestibular system and are important for balance. I'm not going to talk about those today because they're not really related to hearing. Uh, Instead, I'm going to just focus on the cochlea. But bear in mind that that the uh, vestibular system, these canals, are technically speaking part of the inner ear. So, what is the Uh, cochlea? Cochlea... It derives from the Latin word, which essentially means snail, and it's appropriate because it looks like a snail. Um it's got a, it's got a sort of a head and then a, a coiled sort of, well, tail slash shell. So it really does look like a snail. The, the, the where you remember that's the smallest of the ossicles, the, the bones in the, in the middle ear, uh, connects to, if you like, the, the head of the snail. And then moving away sort of towards the inside of the head is the, the coiled tail, if you like. As I've said, the cochlea cochlea is is coiled up. It's actually a single tube. You can think of it as like a tapering tube that's hollow on the inside, although it is filled with fluid, so unlike the inner ear, it's not not hollow. It it does have fluid inside it. Um, But the the cochlea is essentially a tapering tube which is coiled up on itself and winds inwards. Um, However, for ease of discussion, I'm going to talk about it as if it's unwound. So you could sort of... uh, Imagine undoing the spiral, so the cochlea now consists of a, a tapering tube. It's quite, it's quite small, only about three centimeters long, uh, that is uncoiled, so it is not very big at all, uh, but it is quite intricate in its structure, and so it'll take a little bit t- to discuss. So the basic idea of the cochlea is, as I said, that it's a it's a tapering tube. Um, it's also described as a membranous labyrinth, which is a bit of a mouthful. That means it's made of membranes or consists of membranes, and it's sort of wound up and complicated in its structure. But we're imagining unwinding it and trying to simplify a bit just to get the basic idea of what's going on here. Um, the basic idea is inside this inside the cochlea are fluid filled tubes. The pressure is transmitted by the, stap- the stapes to um, the, these tubes which causes motion of the fluid in the tubes. This, in turn, leads to movement of parts of what are called hair cells, and we'll get to those, I've mentioned those, so we'll, we'll get to discussing them. This, in, this movement in hair cells, in turn, uh, leads to the generation of electrical signals which are transmitted to the brain and interpreted as sound. So this is the process by which mechanical motion is transduced into electrical signals, uh, which are interpreted by the brain as sounds. But that's the basic idea of what the inner ear does, and now we'll go through and walk through a bit more detail as to how that works. So you may recall that I said that, that the the scarpies, which is the the smallest of the ossicles, the the final bone in the in the three bone sequence, it connects with what's called the oval window. And basically, you can think of that as the opening of the um, of the cochlea. The it's opening or it's a boundary with the middle ear. Now I say opening. It, it it's not like it opens it opens up and the fluid um, spills out. Um, the, the oval window is a membrane which which uh, keeps the, the the fluid in place. Um, but the, sta- the star piece connects to the oval window vibrating it, which in turn transmits uh, the, these mechanical vibrations through to uh, the fluid which occupies the, the, the tubes inside cochlea. If you think of the oval window as sort of the entry point, again, nothing is physically moving into it, it's the vibrations that are being transmitted, but you can think of it as kind of like the entry point. There is also, um, sort of down the bottom, so lower down um, than the over window is the exit point, which is the round window. It's similar to the over window; it's just a bit smaller. It's also a membrane on the, the cochlea, and this is necessary because the, the fluid uh, that fills the ducts inside the, the cochlea is essentially incompressible. So you, you wouldn't be able to move it around if there, was, if there was no scope for it to sort of bulge out at the other end. If you're pushing something inwards and that thing is incompressible, then there has to be an outwards, out bulging to um, to offset the in pushing. So you can think of it that way. When the the star piece pushes inwards on the oval window, the round window or the the fluid pushes outward on the the, ra- the round window, the the membrane there, um, offsetting that. And so the the vibrations travel through the cochlea around from the oval window out to the round window the sort of tubes that connect the two actually run right down to the tip of the cochlea. Remember, we're thinking we're unrolling the cochlea, so we're thinking of it as a tapered tube. So the the tubes run down right to the tip and then up the other side. What I've been calling a tube is actually called the, the vestibular canal. So the oval window opens up onto or forms the boundary of the vestibular canal, which then runs right down to the end of the cochlea, end of this tapered tube, and then up the other side. Um, but when it runs up the other side it's, it's not called the vestibular canal it's called the tympanic canal so it sort of f- flips between the vestibular canal and the tympanic canal which are connected at the, the very end of the cochlea I am simplifying the structure here I should note um, but I'm trying to get you to understand the basic idea so what we've got uh, again to summarise is cochlea unwound uh, unrolled uh, it's a tube or a couple of tubes within a tube really it's a tapered tube at the entry point where the star piece connects we've got the over window which It's a membrane which marks the boundary of the vestibular canal, which extends out to the end of our tapered tube, the cochlea, and connects into the tympanic canal, which then runs back up the cochlea and exits at the round window, which is another membrane. The round window sitting just sort of below the over window. So we go in and around and back up again. Now, I've talked about the vestibular canal and the tympanic canal, forming the sort of inward and outward um, segments, if you like, of, of the cochlea. But there is also a duct that sits in between these two that's not connected either to the oval window or to the round window. So what is this duct called and why is it there? This is the cochlear duct, and this is essentially where the hair cells live. So these hair cells are are crucial for the transduction of the actual uh, electrical signals or the the mechanical signals into electrical signals, which we'll talk about. So so the hair cells don't sit in either the vestibular canals or the tympanic canals. They actually sit in between them in a third canal, if you like, or, or space called the cochlear duct. And the uh, the auditory nerves, all of the, um, the the neurons which transmit the signals uh, to the brain, connect with the hair cells in the cochlear duct. Now, how does that mechanical vibration or movement get translated into the electrical signals which are interpreted as sound? Well, that all happens through the hair cells which sit in the cochlear duct. Uh, more specifically, the hair cells sit on top of a membrane which which basically is you can think of it as the roof of the tympanic canal. It's called the the Basilar membrane. It's the base, basically. It's the, the base where the hair cells sit. Above the hair cells is something called the tectoral membrane. So you can think of it as if the hair cells are wedged between two membranes tectoral at the top and basilar at the bottom. So basilar at the base. So what are these hair cells doing, and what does the tectoral membrane that I keep talking about have to do with that? Well, as I said, the hair cells sit on... So the cell bodies are anchored to the, the basilar membrane, which, remember, sits on top of the tympanic canal. So, of course, as the tympanic canal vibrates, as the fluid moves around in there, the hair cells are going to move as well. The the, va- the basilar membrane is moved, the hair cells move. Um, but it's not exactly the motion of the cell body of the, the hair cell that's crucial. Rather, there are these uh, projections from the cell body which uh, form... These crucial organelles, called stereocilia. So I've talked about cilia in some of the episodes on cell structure and function. I don't remember exactly when, um, but basically the, these are projections of the cell. That they kind of look like hairs, really, and that's why they're called these cells are called hair cells because it looks like they have this hair on top of them. It's not literally hair, but it kind of looks like that. That these stereocilia kind of look like hair, so that's why they're called hair cells. Um, now these stereocilia are. Lodged or stuck, if you like, or project into the tectoral membrane. So this is really crucial here. The cell bodies of these hair cells just sit on the basilar membrane. The cell bodies don't contact the tecto- the tectorial membrane. But the stereocilia which stick out at the top of them do. So, I mean, the way I think of it as the, the, is uh, the hair cells are kind of like these, uh, these heads that are sort of sitting on the basilar membrane. And then their hair sticks up and is stuck into the te- the tectorial membrane on top of them. Which is a little bit of a weird way of thinking about it. Sort of disembodied heads with the hair sticking out on sort of into the tectorial membrane. But it, you know, it's a it's a picture that you remember hopefully. So uh, hair cells between these two membranes. The tectorial membrane is held more or less in place. So when the basilar membrane vibrates as a result of the um, the fluid moving about in the tympanic canal beneath it, the hair cell body moves, but the Stereocilia stuck in the tectorial membrane are more or less fixed in place. Again, I'm simplifying here, but this will give you the sense of what's happening. So if the cell body is moving and the stereocilia are fixed in place, obviously the stereocilia are going to be moved in relation to the body. There's going to be a shearing motion there. You can think of this again very loosely as, as if the as if, you know, when you move the toothbrush back and forth on the, on your teeth, um, the bristles are the, the bristles bend and move back and forth. That's sort of what the stereocilia are doing as the as the hair cells are moved on as a result of the motion of the basilar membrane beneath them. It could, could be up and down or side to side. It, either way, it, it's, it's moving around. So what happens is these bristles, as we think of them, or the stereocilia, are moving or bending in relation to the cell body of the, uh, of the hair cells? Well, well, basically, there are Ion channels, which sit on the cereocilia, remember ion channels are basically proteins that stick in the cell membrane, which can open and close, allowing ions to move in and out. And this is crucial to the production of graded potentials and depolarization, which is necessary for transmitting neural signals. If you don't know what I'm talking about here, I recommend consulting episode 38 on neurons and and synapses. Probably should have mentioned that as a prerequisite. It will help for this part anyway. So these ion channels that I mentioned, particularly um, potassium ion channels, are mechanically gated, which means they're literally pulled open as the stereocilia move. They're actually connected by these sort of thin wire-like sort of things, which, so if one is pulled open, it'll sort of pull open the, the next one. It's almost like um, kind of like pulling a rope to open a trap door. Ion channels are physically pulled open by the, the shearing motion of the stereocilia moving in relation to the cell body. Now, when the mechanically gated potassium ion channels open, the potassium comes in, enters the cell, uh, causes membrane uh, polarization, so a, a differential charge between the inside and the outside of the cell. This, in turn, causes the opening of calcium ion channels that are located down in the the body of the, the cell. So the, the calcium ion channels are different to the potassium ion channels. Potassium ion channels are up in the stereocilia and they're mechanically gated. So they're physically pulled open as the stereocilia move in relation to the cell body. These potassium ions don't directly lead to the uh, transduction of, of electrical signals. Rather, they cause calcium ion channels that are voltage-gated, so respond to changes in electrical potential. The potassium causes these calcium voltage-gated ion channels to open in the cell body, causing calcium ions to come in These calcium ions then fuse with uh, synaptic vesicles which are located in the cell body. These vesicles are just uh, essentially little spheres inside the cytoplasm which contain neurotransmitters. The calcium signals the vesicles and causes them to fuse with the membrane releasing the neurotransmitter which then travels across the synaptic duct and interacts with the synapse of an afferent neuron which carries the signal to the brain. So uh, the, the crucial process here to understand is that the hair cells themselves don't fire action potentials. You remember action potential is a uh, sort of a progressive change, uh, sort of like a wave travelling along, a wave of, of change potential along the membrane of an axon, sort of like the tail of uh, a neuron. Which uh, so, so the action potential travels along the, the tail of the axon and then uh, synapses with um, another neuron, causing it to then fire an action potential. Hair cells don't fire action, action potentials. They don't have axons. Instead, they just directly release neurotransmitter uh, to the afferent neuron, which then fire an action potential and takes the signal to the brain. So, again, that process is motion of the stereocilia leading to opening of mechanically gated ion channels, leading to potassium flowing into the cell, leading to depolarization, leading to Opening of calcium voltage-gated ion channels, leading to calcium calcium interacting with the vesicles, which then fuse with the cell membrane, which then leads to the release of the neurotransmitters, which were sitting in the vesicles, which in turn leads to a a signal firing in the uh, synapsed neuron, which then carries the signal to the brain. So that's how mechanical vibrations are transmitted into electrical signals. It's all all the hair cells. The hair cells uh, do the job through their two different types of ion channels, mechanically gated and then voltage gated, leading to release of neurotransmitters, and then setting the signal to lead to the firing of an action potential of the the synapsed afferent neuron. And and these afferent neurons in turn are bundled into the, um, uh, the, the cochlear nerve, which carries the signal to the brain. Now that we've finally managed to transduce an electrical signal from uh, mechanical motion, let's talk about what happens to this signal and how it's processed. As always from uh, sensory systems, we understand the sort of mechanical transduction part better than we understand the high-level processing, because that's a lot more complicated. But there's a bit we can say about it, and I'll just give a a few uh, interesting points here. There's there's much more that we could discuss, but um, this is just an introductory discussion. So we'll just hit on a few key points. So um, you remember I I said that the once we've transduced the mechanical uh, motion into electrical signals via the nerves, uh, sorry, via the hair cells, those signals are sent to the brain. That's not quite correct because they don't transmit directly to the cortex, so the higher regions of the brain. They first synapse with the brain stem, which is part of the brain, but not not sort of part of the higher brain. So first, this, this, this sound information is transdu- is transmitted to the brain stem, which is, um, responsible for a lot of sort of autonomic processes. So things that we, like digestion and breathing, for example, which we don't consciously think about, but nonetheless need neural signals to happen. Uh, so a lot of the auditory information is first transmitted here and then up to, um, the higher regions of the brain, the, the cortex, the outer region of the brain, which is responsible for the more complex processing, including conscious thought and decision making and so on. The primary auditory cortex is uh, located in the temporal lobes. That's sort of on the side of the head, and it's responsible for processing auditory information, in, or the primary audio information processing re- region in, in humans. Neurons in the auditory cortex are organised according to the frequency of sound that they respond best to. That doesn't mean they only respond to that frequency; that they respond best to that frequency of sound. So this is called a uh, tonotopic mapping. So th- there's actually a, a direct relationship between the, the location of the neuron. In uh, in the auditory cortex and the frequency it responds to. So you know, high frequencies, cells that respond best to higher frequencies will be located to one end, and then sort of middle frequencies uh, in the, in the middle, and then lower frequencies, um, you know, on the other end. So so that there's a direct mapping. This is similar to what we saw in the visual cortex with uh, mapping of the angles uh, or the the orientation of lines that cells respond to, or of colours and things like that. Uh, we we see similar tonotopic mapping um, in the auditory cortex. And this is thought to directly reflect the fact that the cochlea is also arranged according to sound frequency. So I, I didn't mention this before, but let's jump back for a moment. And um, if, if you recall the um, the, the basilar membrane that, that I mentioned, that that's the the membrane that sits on top of the, th- the on top of the tympanic duct, and it's where the hair cells live. So the hair cells sit on top of the basilar membrane. The basilar membrane, however, is not the same along the entire length of the cochlea. Remember, the cochlea is a, is a sort of a tapered tube. Um, the, the basilar membrane actually gets wider moving from the base, sort of near the, remember, the round and the oval windows? That's the base of the cochlea, if you like, up to its apex or the tip. It actually widens, and as it does, it gets more flexible. So it's narrow and stiff at the base of the cochlea, and wider and more flexible at the apex of the cochlea. And this means that the basilar membrane uh, vibrates better in response to different frequencies as you move along. So it responds best to high pitch sounds, high-frequency sounds at the base, and lower-frequency sounds at the apex. This means in turn that the hair cells located at different places along the basilar membrane will tend to uh, respond better to different frequencies of sound. And in turn, therefore, that the signals coming from those particular hair cells will then respond better to different frequencies of sound. And it's thought that that's, that's directly reflected in terms of a mapping from these hair cells in particular locations along the basilar membrane to the neurons that respond in the primary auditory cortex best to particular frequencies of sound. Uh, so so this tone-topic mapping seems to um, have its origins in the basilar membrane and then is, is further reflected in the, the auditory cortex itself which is quite interesting, and this is one way that we perceive different frequencies. It's not the only way, it's quite complicated, but this is one way. It's basically it depends on the location of the hair cells that is uh, most active in response to a particular sound. That tells you what the frequency of that sound is, based on, again, um, how stiff or flexible the basilar membrane is in that location. Coming back to neural pathways and auditory processing... Surrounding the primary auditory cortex are the, the secondary and tertiary audio cortexes, which are thought to respond more to complicated sounds. So, so many of the cells or the neurons in the primary auditory cortex respond best to sounds of a particular frequency. This is the tonotopic mapping we talked about. Neurons at higher levels of, uh, so secondary and tertiary cortex, however, seem to respond to more complicated patterns of sounds. In particular, these Areas in the secondary and tertiary cortex have been associated with language processing and music as well. There's been a lot of study about processing and music, uh, which we mostly won't talk about. Uh, But so, again, in likewise, as we had in the visual system, where there's a hierarchy of levels of processing from the sort of simple up to the more complex as you move um, through the cortex, it's similar in the auditory cortex it seems that you start with sort of lower level processing of individual frequencies and then move up to combine those into more complicated patterns of sounds uh, particularly with a focus on language and music. Okay uh, let's now talk a little bit about some of the more uh, detailed aspects of auditory processing with a focus on sound localization. So how do we know where sounds come from? Nothing we've talked about so far really gives us any indication of that. Regardless of where the sound comes from, it is detected in the same way by those hair cells, um, you know, depending on the vibration of the, the basilar membrane in the, in the cochlea um, and transmitted to, to the brain. So th- th- there's, no chorus, there's no correlate um, of sort of the, the place in the visual field of sounds like there is obviously for vision. So we see where things are based on where in the visual field uh, they're detected. But there's there's no correlate to that in in the auditory system. So how do we know where sounds come from? We can tell quite accurately to within about one degree, I think, uh, where around us a sound is coming from. So how do we do that? This is called sound localization. Uh, It's been extensively studied in mammals, and it seems that there's no one way we do it. There's many different ways, which uh, makes sense because it's a complicated problem, and you wouldn't want only one way of doing it because if that... A method breaks down through, due to disease or something like that. Then you are going to have no ability to localise sound. It's much better to have a, um, a variety of methods which can complement each other. It seems that there are two important mechanisms uh, that we rely on are what are called um, interaural differences in timing and phase. So basically, this means the fact that we compare the, our brains compare the sounds between the two different our two different ears and use that to make a determination about which direction it's coming from and also how far away it is, potentially. So, there's a couple of ways that you can do this. First of all, you can look at the, the timing difference between the, either the onset of the sound or looking at the phase difference um, in the, waves, the wave patterns that hit one ear versus the other. That, will, that can tell you the difference in time that elapsed between when the sound first hit one ear and when it hit the other ear, and that will give you an indication as to, potentially, the direction, but also how far away the sound, uh, the sound was. That's more useful for higher frequencies because if the frequencies get too large the the distance between the two ears is actually very small or compared to the the size of the the wavelengths of sound that are actually hitting us so therefore um, the phase differences isn't very useful when the wavelengths get that long so for uh, for lower frequencies determination of direction is more dependent not on the the timing difference or the phase difference but just on the difference in loudness of the sound um, so that is, uh, from one ear to the other. Obviously, the ear that's further away will have, um, be slightly softer due to the, the dissipation uh, having moved further away from its source. So essentially, for longer frequencies, we're more reliant on differences in volume between one ear and the other. And for higher frequencies, we're more reliant on differences in phase or, or the timing, the onset of the, um, the sounds, the, the wavelengths from one ear to the other. Um, there are many other things that we, um, you many other tools we use, our brains use rather, because we're not conscious of all this, to determine the origin of sounds. So it, it's thought that our, the pin of the structure of the outer ear actually is partly developed in order to help us determine the direction based on the pattern of reflections and so on that, that we have on the ear, which is interesting. It's also been shown that vision plays a role in helping us to determine where, where the sound is coming from. Essentially, this has been determined by um, you, you, you disrupt one of the ears, so disrupt the ability to uh, to, to localize sound. This is done in animals and in humans, obviously. Uh, so you disrupt one of the ears, thereby disrupting sound localization ability. Then if you wait a while, you'll see that it tends to be corrected over time. However, if you do something to the vision, so you can fit uh, these lenses on an animal, which will rotate light by a certain number of degrees, you can show that the, they, they still sort of offset, they correct the, um, the defect to the sound localization over time, but the correction is ten degrees off, just as their vision is ten degrees off. So th- this tells us that the visual information is used to calibrate the the various mechanisms that are used to for, for sound localization. So, so that's actually quite inter- quite interesting finding, I think. So the summary there is that we use a large number of different means to uh, for sound lo- methods for sound localization, including the difference in the intensity or the volume of the sound from one ear to the other, the difference in phase or timing between one ear and the other, uh, structures of the pinner and the reflections that they create, uh, as well as visual information and other mechanisms as well. So, to finish out the episode, I wanted to talk a little bit bit about deafness. Just very briefly, uh, one of the most important things to understand is that there are many many, many different causes of deafness. Uh, so there's no, you know, there can never be a cure for deafness because there's no single cause of deafness. There are three main types or classes of hearing loss that I want to talk about, which are called conductive hearing loss, sensory neural hearing loss, and central deafness. And there are also sort of a fourth class which consists of combinations of those. Uh, but we'll focus on the first three. Conductive hearing loss is uh, caused by sound not reaching the inner ear so not reaching the cochlea. So this is no vibrations in the cochlea. So your cochlea could be completely fine, the hair cells are fine, all of the uh, neural aspects of hearing is is completely fine, Uh, it's just the vibrations aren't reaching the cochlea, so obviously you're not going to hear anything. This can be due to malformation of the external ear canal, so the outer ear, or some sort of dysfunction of the eardrum or the bones in the middle ear. So this this form of conducting hearing loss is the most, as I understand it, most common type of hearing loss as a result of ageing, either because the, um, eardrum stiffens up or has problems, or there's some infection there, or the, the ossicles, um, stiffen up and have difficulty conducting the sound to the inner ear. Conductive hearing loss is in some sense the easiest, or at least the simplest form of, uh, hearing loss to deal with, uh, because the outer and middle ear are the, the sort of simplest, um, aspects of the ear and we understand them the best. Any means of bypassing these structures and just sort of directly stimulating the cochlea would uh, restore hearing in these people, and people are working on that sort of thing. The, the next type of hearing loss is called uh, sensory neural hearing loss, and it's caused by some sort of dysfunction of the inner ear, so the cochlea, or the nerves that transmit the impulses from the cochlea to, to the brain. Uh, so most common is some sort of damage or disruption or dysfunction of the hair cells. If they're not working properly, obviously you, you're you're going to get the vibrations to the cochlea, but they're not going to be transduced and carried to, to the brain. The final type of deafness is called central deafness. This is when the outer ear, the inner ear, the, the middle ear, uh, the transduction, everything's working fine. It's just there's some damage to the brain, which leads to uh, inability to properly interpret the signals and hear. Now, this type of deafness is interesting because... Uh, since all of the peripheral aspects of hearing are working correctly but the patient is unable to hear unable to perceive sound some of these patients who are centrally deaf are actually able to react to sounds that they perceive unconsciously so remember i said that a lot of these auditory signals go directly to the brain stem and only then to to the auditory cortex if there's some sort of damage either to the auditory cortex or to the, the transduction from the brainstem to, to the cortex. There'll, there'll be no ability to consciously perceive sound because that's all the auditory cortex doing that sort of processing but the the person may be able to react reflexively to sounds that they nevertheless um, perceive through, perceive is the wrong word, that they detect in the, um, the brainstem. So that's actually quite interesting. So c- central deafness is uh, really a defect of the brain whereas the other two are defects of the ear or the um, nerves connecting the brain to the ear. Now, you may have heard of cochlear implants. Cochlear implants are used to treat the second type of hearing loss, so sensory neural hearing loss. Actually, come to think of it, I think it could be used, uh, there's no reason it couldn't be used to treat conductive hearing loss as well. It wouldn't, it would not work on central deafness because, um, the cochlear implants don't do anything to the brain directly. Um, so if, if the ability to process the neural, uh, the auditory signals is disrupted, then cochlear implants isn't going to help with that. But at least for uh, some types of deafness, cochlear implants can be helpful. Essentially what they do is bypass the, the middle ear and large parts of the inner ear completely. Cochlear implants um, are an implant in, inside the inner ear, inside the cochlea, which artificially stimulate the cochlear nerve by providing electrical impulses so the the uh, the cochlear nerve still needs to be functional for for cochlear implants to work, but you don't need a fun- functioning hair cells because it bypasses those you don 't need um the ossicles in the middle ear those are bypassed as well. The eardrum bypassed all of that's bypassed basically the the way they work is there are external microphones which pick up sound they 're usually um mounted somewhere sort of behind the ear. those transmit signals in a wire that passes through to and essentially through the the middle ear through the cochlear and Connects up in a complicated way, which we won't talk about, to the cochlear nerve. Now, of course, it's not just one Y because there's needs to send different signals for different frequencies and so on. So the the way it's connected up is complicated, and that's the difficulty in producing these devices and in implanting them properly. But the the key, the reason that these devices work as well as they do, is because we don't actually need to sort of replicate the patterns of neural, uh, sorry, the patterns of electrical activity that hair cells produce. All we need to do is provide uh, the brain, with pattern of electrical impulses which logically, uh, which, which in sort of some logical way, map to changes in frequencies in, in the air. The magic of the brain is that it will figure out the rest, in a sense. Not not perfectly, um, obviously, because the, the cochlear implants don't restore hearing in the same way that people who are hearing via transduction of signals by hair cells do, because it's a different mechanism, it's not as, um, not as precise. But their brains are able to make sense of the input in a way that still allows them to perceive sounds and to understand spoken speech and so on. So that's one reason why cochlear, well actually that's the main reason why cochlear implants work best when they're implanted very young because the the brain is more plastic at that age and is better able to adapt to the, um, and make sense of the, the patterns of input coming from the implants. The, that that's the crucial insight of the cochlear implants is that we actually don't sort of need to understand exactly how the input of uh, the output of the um, electrical signals from hair cells normally works. We just have to understand the basic idea that it's related to the frequencies of sound. Um, and then if we can provide uh, sort of substitute electrical uh, electrical output, which is also related to frequencies of sound, the brain will figure out a way of making sense of that and turning it into sort of conscious perception of sound. We don't have to do that for it; the brain does it. So the way I've heard this described is that. Cochlear Cochlear implants work so well, not because they are really smart in any way, it's because the brain is really clever. That's not to diminish uh, the achievement of developing the cochlear implant, mind you, but um, I think it does put in perspective as to to how the technology actually works. Largely, it relies on the brain's plasticity. If it was just an issue of us providing the same input that the hair cells do, we'd have no chance. We we don't understand in in enough detail how that works. Okay, so before we finish out the episode, let's let's pass through one quick trip through uh, the ear, from the outer to the inner, so that we make sure we've got in our minds, or I've properly explained, how this uh, process works. So we begin with the pinna of the outer ear and the the vibrations in the air, changes in pressure of air molecules, which interact with the uh, the folds and the cartilage of the the pinna, producing patterns which help the Patterns of sounds which are detected by the brain and help us to localize sound and so on. That the, the pinna also collects sound from a, a larger area and focuses it down through the external auditory canal, the ear canal, um, which then passes to the tympanic membrane or the eardrum. The eardrum then vibrates um, in accordance with the external signals that are being received or the the, the um, sound waves that are being that are being received. Um, the eardrum. Then causes motion, the vibration of the eardrum causes motion of the malleus, which is one of the three ossicles or the small bones inside the middle ear. Malleus is connected to the, the incus, which is co- in turn connected to the, the, the stapes, which finally is connected to the oval window, which forms the outer part of the inner ear. So the ossicles, remember, are part of the middle ear. So they transmit the vibrations of the tympanic membrane or the eardrum through to the inner ear via the oval membrane. Now, as the oval membrane vibrates, it causes motion of the uh, fluid inside the inside the vestibular canal, which then sort of moves around and extends out uh, at the, the tip of the cochlea and comes back up through the tympanic canal. Remember, remembering, of course, that the cochlea is actually wound up, but we're imagining that it's unwound for for ease. Um, So these vibrations travel up the vestibular canal, around and up the tympanic canal, and as they travel up the tympanic canal, they cause motion of the basilar membrane. On the basilar membrane sit hair cells, which have projections called stereocilia, which are stuck into an, an overlying membrane, which is called the tectorial membrane. As the the uh, membrane moves in relation to the tectoidal membrane, which is held in more or less in place. The hair cells move in relation to the stereocilia, causing the stereocilia to uh, move, essentially in a shearing motion like the bristles of a toothbrush. As the uh, stereocilia are moved in that way, mechanically gated uh, ion, potassium ion channels that sit on the stereocilia are opened, literally pulled open. Potassium ions flow into the cell, causing depolarization, which causes voltage gated calcium ion channels to open up, causing calcium ions to flow into the, this is now in the body of the hair cell. These calcium ions cause synaptic vesicles that are sitting around inside the hair cell to um, fuse to the cell membrane, causing them to, causing these vesicles to release their contents of neurotransmitter, which then diffuses through the synaptic cleft and synapses with the, or or fuse with the, the membrane of the afferent neurons, thereby passing electrical signals to the brain. Well, first of all, generally to the brain uh, stem, and then, uh, and then in turn, the neurons um, transmit the signals up to the auditory cortex, the primary auditory cortex, which is located in the temporal lobes, where it's then processed on the basis of signal, um, and then in in higher secondary and tertiary auditory cortex areas for, to interpret speech and music and other things like that. So that's how we hear. Hopefully you found this episode interesting. If you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd go onto Facebook and give our, the podcast uh, page a like. Uh, I also appreciate reviews on iTunes or other podcast aggregators that you might use. Um, If you're interested in contacting me, sending a message or uh, giving some feedback about the show or uh, an idea for a future topic, uh, my email address is fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.